All right, so I'm going to invite you to grab your beverages and to come back in as we are going to continue on with our series on Elijah this morning. We took uh, a slight departure last week with uh, Elijah actually wasn't really in the story as an unnamed prophet comes and confronts Ben-Hadad and uh, Ahab and Ben-Hadad have a little bit of a couple battles between the two of them with Ahab coming out on top. And so we're going to return back to Elijah in a little bit here today. He's been resting up on uh, a mountain with God after his great victory in the Battle of Mount Carmel and his uh, depressive episode afterwards, after Elijah had threatened his life. And so now uh, Ahab has had his battles with Ben-Hadad. He's come out victorious. And now he's back at home in his palace after securing peace. And that is where we're going to find him in 1 Kings chapter 21 today. So that's where we're going to be, 1 Kings 21. You can turn to that in your Bibles or your electronic biblical devices. Uh, And we're going to be reading from the New Living Translation in there. And uh, chapter 21, I'm not going to lie, is an interesting passage to be preaching from this morning. Uh, I know a couple people have read ahead and said, uh, I do not know what this passage you can draw from this passage. Uh, and even looking at next week with Wally's, uh, he's going to have another challenging one as well. But I've been doing some uh, membership classes with a couple of people. And one of the things that Jericho commits to the members is that we're going to teach the whole council of the word of God. And so I'm going to do that today. And we're not going to skip over Naboth's vineyard, which is a little bit of a tricky passage. Uh, we're going to talk about it. And it was pretty fun to prepare, and so we're going to see what God is going to speak through this today. So now Ahab has returned to Samaria and his palace, and it's during a nice time of peace. But it seems when kings are at home, uh, and also when they're at home with peace in the land, and they have nothing to do, that's when they tend to get into a little bit of trouble. King David stayed home from war, and hung around his palace, and he ended up sleeping with another man's wife and impregnating her. Solomon's entire reign was during a time of peace, uh, and so it allowed him to build a very nice, fancy palace in Jerusalem, a nice big temple to Yahweh in Jerusalem, but it also gave him the time to marry 700 foreign wives uh, and bringing idol worship into Israel. So Ahab's at home, he's at peace, he's lounging around the house, and what he seems, decides to do is seemingly innocent. He decides to do some work on his palace. And uh, I, we discovered at our house that we had HGTV. Uh, and, I mean, recently it seems to have disappeared. I don't know if it was a trial or something that we did to it. But uh, I've watched my fair share of reno, homes, uh, reno shows. And uh, the thing I've learned is there's always something underneath the surface of your renos. Uh, if you watch lots of Love It or List It Vancouver, it's usually rotten wooden boards behind your walls. Uh, 
or often some electrical problems, which you can ask Wally and Sylvia all about that with their reno. Uh, so there's usually something under the surface of the renovation. Now Ahab's not working directly on his palace. Uh, he's not renovating the inside. Uh, they didn't have electricity, so he doesn't have to worry about that. Uh, probably not any rotten wooden boards. No, he's, he's sitting in his room and he's looking out his window. And as he looks out, he looks down on the land below and there's a nice vineyard out there. And as he's looking over this vineyard, he thinks to himself, you know what? This would be a really convenient place for a vegetable garden. Which is, I mean, kind of a sin in itself, turning a vineyard into a vegetable garden. But that's what he has decided. So he's looking over and he decides, you know what, I think I want this piece of land. So he goes downstairs, he heads over to his neighbor, a man named Naboth, who owns the vineyard, and he presents him with a, a quite a good proposal. He says, Naboth, since your vineyard is so convenient to my palace, I would like to buy it to use as a vegetable garden. I will give you a better vineyard in exchange, or if you prefer, I will pay you for it. Now this seems like a fair deal, does it not? He's willing to pay Naboth the value of the vineyard or even better, give him something even better, even better vineyard to have. It seems quite fair. However, Naboth rejects the deal and he says, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance that was passed down to my ancestors. Now when someone says the Lord forbid, it usually means that there's something religiously sketchy going on underneath the surface this uh, underneath the surface and this deal isn't nearly as innocent as it seems and the sketchiness is revealed in Leviticus or in the book of numbers and in the book of numbers it says none of the territorial lands may pass from tribe to tribe for all the land given to each tribe must remain within the tribe to which it was first allotted this is a command that God had given to Israel when Joshua had taken over leadership from Moses and led the people into the promised land and they began to take possession of it. And as they took possession of it, they set borders. They split this land that they had gotten into 12 different units for the 12 different tribes. And each tribe would give land to each family within that tribe. And it was a way of God protecting the smaller tribes and the less fortunate. You were given this piece of land and it was yours and it would pass down through your family and it would remain in your family. So even if you were quite poor, you would still at least have some land to grow some food on. And you were prevented from some of the larger tribes that had more people, couldn't just come and take your land because it was forbidden. The only time land would be exchanged is if someone was in such a great debt, they needed to sell the land to get out of debt. But in the year of Jubilee, the land would be restored back to their family. So in the year of Jubilee, seven is a very important number. It's the number of perfection for Israel. And so every seventh year, you have a Sabbath year where the land rests. And every seventh, seventh year, you get the year of Jubilee. And debts are forgiven, slaves are set free, and everyone gets back to their own family piece of land every 49th year. So that's the only time the land could switch. It was more like a barring. They recognized that Yahweh had given them this land, so they didn't really own the land. It was Yahweh's land, and they were just taking care of it. And so you can't sell the land in the way that Ahab did, because that was against the law of God. 
So we see from Naboth's response that he is one of those few remaining Israelites who is still worshiping Yahweh. He's refusing to break Yahweh's law. He's one of the, I think it was 700 that uh, God promised Elijah had not bowed their knee to Baal yet. He was still worshiping God. Ahab's response is one that does not befit a king. It's a little bit more like a little child. He goes home and sulks. He storms off, runs upstairs to his room, flops down on his bed, and refuses to eat. It's a great look. He throws a temper tantrum because he doesn't get his way. His wife Jezebel obviously notices that her husband is not down at dinner, and so she goes up to his room and finds him moping on his bed. What's the matter, she asks. What has made you so upset that you are not eating? Ahab sulkily responds, I asked Naboth to sell me his vineyard or trade it, but he refused. Are you not the king of Israel? Get up and eat something and don't worry about it. I'll get you Naboth's vineyard. Jezebel takes over. She gets to work. Ahab hands over to her his royal seal with which she can put the mark on, making any decrees or commands with his name. So she pens a letter to the elders of Naboth's town area, Jezreel, and commands them to declare a city-wide fast. And so they would declare fast to repent of some great sin that maybe the city did, or maybe there's an impending disaster coming, an army's coming towards them, and so they would fast and pray for deliverance. So she tells them to proclaim a fast. They're supposed to take Naboth and put him in a position of honor, and then sit across from him two men of ill repute who would be willing to say, we heard Naboth curse God, so commit blasphemy, and curse the king, so commit treason. And then they were to take Naboth, drag him outside of the city, and stone him to death. So the elders who are likely terrified of the evil queen Jezebel follow her orders. They declare a citywide fast. They place Naboth in a seat of honor. Across from him sit two scoundrels who claim that they heard Naboth curse God and curse the king. And so the community takes him, drags him outside the city, and they stone him to death. See, Jezebel's reaction and command is actually quite interesting. It shows that she knows the law of Yahweh, but also that she doesn't particularly care about it unless it suits her need. She's a twister of scripture. First off, her question to Ahab, are you not the king of Israel, and her action afterwards shows that she doesn't have the same idea of what the king of Israel means, what that title means, compared to what Yahweh had intended it to mean. The king was supposed to not only be the governing official, but also a religious leader. He was supposed to promote the worship of Yahweh in the land. He was supposed to copy out the book of Deuteronomy by hand and read it every single day to be steeped in the law of God and to be able to follow it so that the people would follow it as well and it would go well for them in the land. He was supposed to be God's representative as king of Israel. But the way... Jezebel acts is a totally different idea of a king. She doesn't see a king as a representative of God, but as a God himself. 
She thinks if you're the king, you should be able to have what you want, and you should be able to do whatever means it takes to get it. And so she has no problem issuing the order for a man to be killed so that they can take his vineyard, because King Ahab, as king, is a god, and so he can have what he wants. But it also shows that she knows the law of Yahweh. Everything she does in her letter and all the details follows along with Yahweh's law. She knows that the punishment for cursing God is death and death by stoning. She knows that the death by stoning needs to take place outside of the city walls so that the city doesn't become impure. She knows that you can't just have one person make an accusation of cursing God. You have to have at least two witnesses. She puts that all into place. She follows those laws because they suit her need. It's the way that she can get rid of Naboth without anyone suspecting any kind of ill, wrong motives behind it. She follows the scriptures and twists it to her use. And she ignores the ones that she doesn't like or the ones that don't help her out. In this case, one of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not bear false witness about your neighbor. She gets two guys to lie about Naboth Naboth, so that he would be stoned to death. She's an abuser of scripture, something that we need to be aware of, both when other people abuse scripture and when we in our own interpretations abuse scripture and try to make it what we want it to be. One of our core values, oh, the banner switched. It's over on this side this time. Transformational truth. We want to be transformed by God's word. We don't want to transform God's word in order to work for us. We want to be transformed by what it says. And so we shouldn't be looking to change God's word to suit us or leave out parts of it that don't work for us in our situation. Instead, we need to be transformed by it. And as Anabaptists, our tradition uh, that we are in, we try to fight off abusive scripture by something called a communal hermeneutic, where we want to read and interpret the Bible as a community. Instead of having someone with the title of a pastor saying this is what the interpretation is and being like, okay, that's what it is, we want to come together as a group and read the Bible's together and interpret together as a community to help limit uh, that abuse and that misuse of scripture. So the important thing from that is, yes, keep doing your daily Bible reading on your own, but also make sure you're reading and interpreting scripture with uh, a group of people in a community, and you can do that. Here's a plug for small groups starting up in the fall. So uh, make sure you look for those starting up uh, and help participate and get some communal interpretation rather than just uh, an individual interpretation. So she twists scripture. The town elders do the queen's bidding and they kill poor Naboth. Jezebel gets word that the deed is done and she gleefully goes to her husband. You know that vineyard that Naboth wouldn't sell you? Well, you can have it now. He's dead. Ahab asks no questions but jumps up from his moping spot on his bed and skips down to the vineyard to lay claim to it for himself. And while all this Naboth vineyard stuff is going on, Elijah is still on his retreat when God comes and speaks to him again. And God says, Go down to meet King Ahab of Israel who rules in Samaria. He will be at Naboth's vineyard in Jezreel, claiming it for himself. Give him this message. This is what the Lord says. Wasn't it enough that you killed Naboth? Must you rob him too? 
Because you have done this, the dogs will lick your blood at the very place where they lick the blood of Naboth. So Elijah heads down the mountain, enters Jezreel. He comes to Naboth's vineyard just as Ahab is checking out his new property. And Ahab sees Elijah and is at first stunned. He has not seen Elijah since that dreaded day on Mount Carmel when he called fire from the sky and killed all of Baal's prophets and chased Ahab in the chariot that awful day. And soon his shock turns to anxiety and he says to Naboth, or not Naboth, Naboth's dead. He says to Elijah, So, my enemy, you have found me. And this is the attitude of Ahab. Anyone who stands in the way of what he wants is an enemy. And Elijah didn't come to Ahab as an enemy. He came to help Ahab. He came to say, don't do this Baal worship, this false idol worship. Turn back to Yahweh. You are king so that you can help guide the people spiritually. You can uh, promote worship of Yahweh, follow the law, and it will go well for you in the land. You're going down the wrong path. Worshiping Baal is a way that it's not going to go well for you. But Ahab has identified Elijah as his enemy and therefore he has identified Yahweh as his enemy because Ahab wants what he wants and he doesn't like people telling him he can't have it. And the same goes for Jezebel. She's just got a little bit more of a vindictive spirit whereas Ahab has a moping spirit. So Elijah comes and he answers, yes. I have come because you have sold yourself to what is evil in the Lord's sight. So now the Lord says, I will bring disaster on you and consume you. I will destroy every one of your male descendants, slave and free alike, anywhere in Israel. I am going to destroy your family as I did the family of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and the family of Baasha, son of Ahijah. For you have made me very angry and have led Israel into sin. And regarding Jezebel, The Lord says dogs will eat Jezebel's body at the plot of land in Jezreel. The members of Ahab's family who die in the city will be eaten by dogs and those who die in the field will be eaten by vultures. Distraught by the proclamation of Yahweh, Ahab goes into mourning. He tears his clothes, he dresses in burlap, and he fasts. These are the mourning traditions of Israel. Throw ash on your head, dress in burlap, fast, and weep and moan and wail just as we simply wear black today and still mourn and weep. And at the sight of Ahab's mourning, God has mercy and relents. He tells Elijah, Do you see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has done this, I will not do what I promised during his lifetime. It will happen to his, his sons. I will destroy his dynasty. Now, at first reading, this might seem quite harsh and unjust by God. Yes, Ahab has consistently been against Yahweh. He now identifies Yahweh as his enemy. He brings idol worship into Israel. And we may even be willing to accept that perhaps he deserves to die for that. The whole situation with Naboth's vineyard is just an expression of how far away Ahab is from Yahweh that he's willing to kill, to steal a man's land and totally ignore his laws or twist them and use them only when they work for him. 
And not only does the sin of bringing idol worship affect him, but it affects the whole nation of Israel. Thousands and thousands of people have fallen away from God and worshipped idols because of the decision of the king of one man. He takes what he wants. He sets himself up as a god rather than God's representative. But isn't it unjust to punish his children and his descendants? Well, it's not actually unjust because we need to understand something about progressive revelation and who God is. Progressive revelation is something that is revealed about God later in history. So one revelation that we have today is life after death and the resurrection of the dead at the end times. But this was a revelation, one that was revealed to Israel during the intertestamental period, the time between the events of the Old Testament and the, time, and the events of the New Testament. About a 500-year gap, I think it is there. And that's where they discovered this revelation of life after death. So during Ahab and Elijah's time, they had no concept or idea about life after death. So that means anything that you get rewarded for or punished for has to happen on earth in this lifetime. There's no afterlife in their minds where you get rewarded or punished. That wasn't revealed until later. So also, when there's no afterlife, the only way that you live on is through your male descendants. So the worst possible punishment you could have when you don't have uh, a revelation of life after death is your family name wiped out. It's like your existence has been completely erased. And so this is why Yahweh proclaims such a punishment on Ahab. He was supposed to promote Yahweh worship, and instead he led thousands of people astray by bringing idol worship. And so his dynasty cannot sit on the throne anymore. But even with all that said, it still doesn't seem fair that the kids get wiped out because of what their dad does. And this is where we also have to see who God is. And in particular, that God primarily acts in a way of mercy and of grace. When Ahab goes into mourning, God has mercy and relents, saying it won't happen during his lifetime. God has set a precedent. And this is where I get to add a rhyme. If you repent, he will relent. H.G.M. Spence uh, says this in his commentary on 1 Kings. There is no injustice here, no threat of punishment against the innocent instead of the guilty as might at first sight appear. For in the first place, God knew well what the son would be. And in the second place, if the son had departed from his father's sins, he would have been spared. The sentence would have been revoked. Judgment was deferred to give the house of Ahab another chance. The precedent has been set. Ahab mourns and kind of repents from his sin, and so God relents from punishment. If his sons decide not to follow in their father's way and gets rid of idol worship and instead brings back in worship of Yahweh, the punishment would not have happened because God is a God of mercy and of grace. What we get in the story of Ahab and Naboth's vineyard and God's relenting of punishment is a comparison of the grace that we get today. When Ahab goes into mourning, God relented. He held off the punishment but it wasn't quite fully forgiven yet. The punishment was stayed until Ahab or his sons 
fall from God again. And Ahab rather quickly does fall away from God, as we'll see next week. If Ahab would have completely repented, turned away from his sinful ways, and brought back in worship of Yahweh, followed Yahweh's commandments, the punishment never would have come. If his sons had done that, the punishment never would have come. But he goes back to worshiping idols and promoting idol worship. And so the punishment comes back. The sin wasn't quite forgiven. It was just delayed. The punishment was just delayed. But we have grace today that abounds because of Christ. When we put our faith in Christ, he takes our sins and he puts them on the cross and nails them there and they get left in the grave when he raises from the dead three days later. Punishment is not just stayed, but the sin is forgiven completely. When we are completely forgiven, when we are completely set free from the wrath and the punishment of our sins, we no longer want to continue in our ways. We are set free from the slavery of sin. Ahab and Jezebel are still in the slavery of their selfish ambitions. They want what they want and they'll do whatever they take to serve those wants and those desires and those selfish ambitions. But in Christ we are set free from our selfish ambitions and we're able to look at our neighbor. And our neighbor is set free from their selfish ambitions and they're able to look at us and serve one another. We are able to fully come back to God. When we are completely forgiven, when we are completely set free from sin and we fully receive God's love, we don't want to go back. We're able to fully repent and turn away from our sinful ways because nothing compares. Our selfish desires do not compare to what God has in store for us. And this is all available to us because of what Christ has done. We got to live in the grace and the mercy that God has for us. So as the worship team comes up, I'm going to invite you to come to the cross, lay down your burdens, repent from your sins, and accept the grace and be forgiven by the God of mercy. When you put your faith in God, it doesn't matter how great you feel your sins are because Christ's death and his resurrection and his ascension are powerful enough to wipe away and to completely forgive. It's not just a stay of punishment, but it's complete freedom and forgiveness. There will be prayer response teams on the side. Myself, uh, Wally, Sylvia, Ali will be on the sides to pray for you, to pray for freedom from those sins, freedom from those burdens that you have. So please use that uh, resource available to you here on the sides.